0: Benito gasps, shoving us away from the dock with his foot, and then we are out on the open waters, breathing freely again, watching the lights of Lazaretto Vecchio recede as we make our way back across the lagoon. The Carvati house rests in the soft stillness of the nighttime hours, but it took so long to row back that it must be close to morning. Soon the cooks and maids will stir. The servants will light fires and unlatch the shutters. And the Salini will return. They're not allowed into Venice until after second bell. But I can't remember if I heard first bell already. How long will it take for the guards to search them? How long to reach our house? We might have less than an hour. My heart quickens. I cannot be caught. We lay the body on the bed, and Benito lights a fire in the hearth as I wrestle one of my nightgowns onto the girl. My stomach churns as I wrench her stiff limbs through the fabric. Out of respect, I fold her arms in front of her and quietly thank her for helping to save my life. I wonder what her name was, where she lived, if she feared death when it came for her. I've sinned by robbing a grave, but her body would have been burned anyway. At least now her bones will be laid to rest in a patrician's tomb. My tomb. She really doesn't look like me at all, but there's nothing to be done about that now. I pick up my washing basin and splash water around the doorframe on the ground to keep the fire from spreading. In her cage across the room, Rella warbles in her sleep her head her head buried in her puffy chest. She wakes up and regards me begrudgingly as I slip a simple letter for Theodore into the straps on her leg. I'm free. I wonder if it will bring Theodore comfort. I rub Rella's feathery belly against my cheek and tuck her into the crook of my arm. Ready? I glance across my room at the birthday presents that will likely burn, my books, all my small comforts. I can't take anything with me, not even my coin purse, lest someone suspect that I ran off. Hopefully, the clothes on my back won't be missed. I nod, and Benito grabs a book off the table and thrusts it into the fire. My copy of De Vegetabilibus, Wait! The word forms on my lips as the pages catch fire, but he's already tossing the flaming book onto the bed, and we both stand and watch the flames lap against the sheets, jumping across the bed, engulfing the body. I slip the rag back over my nose and mouth as smoke, and a wretched smell fills the room. Benito grabs more kindling from a bucket, "'by the hearth and arranges it around the corpse. "'Then he folds his arms and gives a satisfied nod. "'There!' he touches my arm. "'You should go now. "'I'll wake the servants on my way out.' A, I tear, "'I tear my stinging eyes away from our makeshift funeral pyre. "'We slip down the stairs like two shadows.' and I sneak through the main entrance and onto the cobblestone street as Benito moves toward the servants' quarters. I press myself into an arched passageway and listen. Benito's voice echoes through the corridors. Fire! Wake up! Fire! I press Rella to my cheek before releasing her into the sky. She squawks in irritation at the unplanned excursion, and then she's off, flapping clumsily through the air toward Theodore's bedroom. I try not to think of what my family is about to wake up to, but Olivia springs unbidden to my mind. The look on her face the day we buried Julia, how she crumpled in front of the mausoleum, and how father carried her back to our gondola. There is the sound of running feet and shouting, calls for buckets and cries of distress. My legs can no longer hold me up. I slide to the ground and weep for my old life, my family, everything I know. Plumes of smoke billow out of the upstairs windows. Benito sprints into the street and spins around, searching for me. Here. My voice comes out in a croak. I struggle to my feet and follow Benito toward the fishing boat, waiting for us in the canal. As we row back to the Costello district, I hear my mother's voice rise above the others in a high, keening wail. Ugh, that's the end of chapter four. Okay, kiddos, I just gotta say, I have so many problems with this book, so many problems with this story, it just is not sitting right with my spirit or my soul, and I just I am not enjoying this book right now because I think the author has taken so many liberties under the guise of like i don't know poetic in and uh poetic license. And I don't know. She's just, uh, it's, yeah, I'm just not liking the story very much at all. But in an effort to show you kids that I'm not trying to keep things from you and that I'm not, I'm not a big daddy censor, um, trying to weed out things that I may not like, we're going to roll with it because uh, let's just, hope that it gets better and more redeeming we can talk about it we can talk you guys can talk about it think it through let me know what questions you have but it's just giving me that kind of rotten feeling inside so far like all this nastiness is happening bodies are getting stolen they're make you know all these weird um far out Constructs of the novel where these sea monsters are coming to get a, a girl whose father promised her to the sea monsters in exchange for another life. I mean, I'm just, it's just a little out there. Okay, um, just give me one second here and we will start chapter five. A brisk northern wind rushes down the canal and sweeps past me as I stand shivering in the new clothes Benito brought. "'He tied up the boat while I ducked into an alcove to change, "'and now he inspects my outfit, his mouth pressed into a thoughtful frown. "'It doesn't matter that they're big,' I say as I roll the cuffs up of the trousers up and tuck in the shirt. "'I'm thankful now for my lanky form and that the jerkin is loose and shapeless. "'The leather shoes belong to Benito's father.' I only agreed to take everything after he reminded me that his mother could sell my old clothes for enough money to outfit their entire family with new shoes. I wish I had brought a cap to hide the softness of your face. I hand him my old clothes, bend down and rub my fingers along the ground before wiping them across my face. Better? I ask. Almost. He pulls something metal from his pocket and holds them out with an apologetic shrug. They're sewing scissors. His mother's most likely and plenty sharp. Oh, I hesitate. I'm very fond of my thick brown hair. I love its chestnut color that reaches to my waist and shines with red hues in the sunlight. I touch the plates that are bound up like ropes at the nape of my neck. "'Will you do it?' I ask, and Benito nods. I undo the braids and close my eyes, listening to the rasp of metal and the quiet wisp of my hair slipping in coils to the floor. "'Your face is your mask now, Leona,' he says." What does that mask say about me? I'm no longer a Carvati, no longer even a girl, a stranger and a prisoner in Venice. When he's finished, my hair hangs just below my chin. I take a thick ribbon and tie it back at the base of my neck. Half of it falls forward into my face. Most people see what they're expecting to see, Benito says, Just try not to walk like a lady. And try not to smile. It gives you away. That should be easy enough. I have very little left to smile about. It will get easier, Benito Benito says. All hard things do. I hope he is right. Above all, the bells of San Zanapolo ring out. Above us, the bells of San Zanapolo ring out the morning hour. Benito sighs. I have to go. I need time to come up with an excuse for why I was out all night and why I'm coming home with woman's clothing. I clasp my hands in front of me, then hastily separate them at the look on Benito's face. You saved my life. And you save my father's. We're even now. If you need help, you will come find me. Promise? I promise. I refused his offer to stay with his family. The chances of discovery were too high. I'll have to brave the streets alone. Good. He stands up straight and presses a fist to his heart. In Boca Alupo, he says... Into the mouth of the wolf. It's a good luck charm, said to an actor before he goes on stage. I press my fist in return. Crepi il lupo. May the wolf die. Tears spring from my eyes, but I hold them back. I have to be brave. Goodbye, Leo, he says. Leo, short for Leona, and also Leonardo. He's given me one final gift, a new name for my new life. I watch him slip into the nearby alley that leads to his house, wondering if the wolf really will die, or if I'll be devoured. Under different circumstances, I would have enjoyed seeing Venice in disguise, I have never had so much freedom. I was not often allowed out of my house, and never alone. Today I am anonymous and nearly invisible as I wander for hours through the streets of the Castello district. I admire the gauzy shimmer of the spells that support the wooden pilings beneath our buildings and fortify our wooden bridges until they can be rebuilt with the Istrian stone. I'm glad I still have time before the spell sight leaves me. I will miss seeing the magic below the surface of our city. Children point at the street magician's stalls, begging for the smoke animals and spinning balls of light. These vendors are not members of the magician's guild. Their spells are crude and rudimentary, but they can make Easy money entertaining children and reading the fortunes of superstitious adults. My hand goes instinctively to the mark on my wrist, and I tug at my shirt sleeve to ensure that it's hidden. If it really did reveal my whereabouts, then the Selene Lord would have come for me by now. So, his power is limited. That, at least, is a Blessing. I am one of, I am among thousands of Venetians on the streets today. I'm also tired and desperately hungry. I stop beneath an entryway and rest my head against the soft bougainvillea Let me get that word again. bougainvillea I am totally murdering that word. I'm sorry, kiddos. B-O-U-G-A-I-N-V-I-L-L-E-A. Bougainvillea. That's what I'll say. It sounds fancy. It's a total fraud. I don't know what I'm saying. Bougainvillea. I'll look it up so I pronounce it somewhat properly. Bougainvillea that spreads up the wall in bursts of vibrant purple. I have already asked for work at the Waxmakers Guild and the rope makers, but neither one needed extra labor. I waited in line to speak to an herbalist, but when it was my turn, Signor Lorion walked up with his daughter, Portia, and I was so frightened they would recognize me that I raced down several alleyways and lost my way i consider the options before me there is the pietà orphanage but they usually only take infants and my father still goes to hear the children's performances it wouldn't do that it wouldn't do to have me on stage at a concert for at a concert for him and all of venice to see besides one of my few consolations is that i will never have to play a musical instrument again I'd happily join the Horticulturists' Guild, but they pick their apprentices at a young age from respected families, not orphans fast approaching adulthood. Besides, even if I were to find work, I would still be left with my greatest problem, removing the mark that binds me to the Cellini. The only guild that could possibly help me is the magicians, and each magician only hires one assistant, a boy, whom they keep until he loses the spell sight. The chances that a magician needs a new assistant right now are very, very slim. I tangle the soft flower petals between my fingers. What was it my father had said last night about Mago Ray? He lives alone. He doesn't allow guests. That hardly sounds like the kind of man who would search out an assistant. I've heard plenty of stories about the most formidable magician in all Venice. Ray is a hurricane of a man, blunt and scathing, prone to fits of wrath when crossed. He visited our house once when I was young, and I caught a glimpse of him between the marble banisters. Childhood memories are unreliable creatures, but I vividly remember the way his robe flared out around him like charcoal feathers as he strode or flew through the central hall. Fierce black eyes, sharp as a raven's. Most of all, what I conjure up from the memory is how I felt. Small and frightened. "'Anyone would say I'm a fool to knock on that door. "'But I would have food and clothing and shelter. "'I could be perfectly anonymous, depend on no one. "'I'd make up excuses to stay away from the homes of the patricians I knew when he visited them. "'Most importantly, if there's a way to remove this mark, "'I would find it in the magician's library.' I slide my thumb under the cuff of my shirt and rub at the hidden crescent shape. I might be trading one monster for another, but if I want to get out of Venice, then I'll have to brave the danger. After all, I've outsmarted monsters before. That's the end of chapter five, kiddos. Okay, quick note here. Um, Leona is going from one grand deception that employed uh, Benito's help, that is, I guess, working so far. And now she is delving deeper into her life of uh, deception and mystery and hiding. She's going to conceal her identity as she approaches this master magician Maggio Rey. And she's got a plan for how she'll avoid patricians and stay hidden and anonymous if she would happen to become his assistant. So, sounds a little bit like Cora planning out her deceptions to get her way in the uh, Winter King. That seems to be a common thread here with... Uh, Christine Cohen's books. So, anyways, we're gonna go with it, but we're just doing a little bit of analysis, character analysis, and plot plot analysis as we go. Okay, so we'll see how deep old uh, Leona can get into this um, new identity of hers, her her false identity as a street person who looks like a boy now after cutting her lovely locks. CHAPTER SIX As I wander, I have plenty of time to consider the foolishness of my plan. Mago Rey's house is in the San Marco district like mine. Thankfully, the Carvati Palace is at the entrance to the Grand Canal, close to St. Mark's Square at the Doge Palace, and the magician's is further down the canal. It's a short boat ride from the Castello district, but I have no money for a gondola, and so I go on foot, winding down alleys and across bridges, stopping every so often to ask directions. I'd never realized Venice was such a tangled mess of streets and canals, bridges, and squares. I knew there were six districts, but this is the first time I've seen how different they are from each other like separate cities within a kingdom. Since the main entrance to Majo Rey's house, Mago Ray's house opens onto the canal, I plan to enter by the back alley. Not the grandest of first impressions, but I'm confident I can talk my way past the servants. Father said he lived alone, but surely he keeps one or two servants around to help him. I take the narrow street leading in that direction. At the very end, unmistakably, is the home of Mago Ray. A kind woman in the Castello district whose cousin's cousin washes linens for the magician told me to approach the alley entrance carefully. I now understand her warning. The road narrows to a point like an arrow fixed in a target. And at the end, the sea foam green stucco house towers three stories high. Its door is a narrow arch painted such a deep black that it looks like a yawning cavern in the house's side. A collection of thorny briars and poison ivy crowd around the entrance and dangle over the arch. But stranger still, the closer I get to the door, the harder it is to reach. After five exhausting steps, I totter to an unsteady halt and place a sweating hand against the wall. The road isn't uneven or blocked. I am simply fatigued. My head and shoulders ache as if they are swaddled in thick, wet towels that someone is pulling to the ground. I put a hand to my forehead to check for a fever. I won't convince anyone to hire me if I look like I've brought a new plague to Venice. It would be best to come back tomorrow after I've slept. I turn to leave. A blue and white swallow flashes overhead and swoops into the alley. Just as it dips below the tops of the buildings, it lets out a cry and stretches its legs as if it's pushing against the air the bird's wings flail until it crests the roof again then it flies freely away i pause blinking away the fog in my brain this is a spell of course a powerful magician renowned for his aloofness would put up obstacles to de- to deter people from visiting i relax blinking slowly, and the magic materializes before my eyes. A tangle of spells stretches across the alley in crisscrossing patterns like hundreds of laundry lines. They are deep red and pumpkin orange, and they grow thicker and lower as they get closer to the door. I know very little about magic, but I assume these are barrier spells, meant to dissuade people from entering. Unwanted guests wouldn't suspect a spell was keeping them away. They might assume they've suddenly taken ill, like I did, or perhaps they'd remember a more pressing matter that needs attention. I smile grimly. Mago Ray might deter some visitors with this trick, but he can't fool me. More importantly, the spells start a few feet above the road so there is room to duck under them i stoop down and my head clears the relief is so swift and complete that i let out a sigh for a while i shuffle forward in a half crouch but the lattice work of spells is getting lower and once it reaches my cheekbones my head begins to buzz i switch to all fours and crawl along in dirt Crawl along the dirty stone street until my knees bump against the back stoop. The spells connect to the door, so visitors must knock and wait to be let in while still on their knees. My nose almost touches the ivy, which doesn't just wrap around the door, it's actually growing through the gaps and into the house. If I want to make a confident entrance, then I cannot crouch like a dog hoping for scraps. I knock three times on the door, take a deep breath, and struggle to my feet. The air thickens and pulses with heat, as if I've put my head inside a brick oven. I blink to clear my eyes, but the small black dots that bounce around my vision won't disappear. No one answers the door beads of sweat form on my forehead and i slip back down into a crouch and take a few quick breaths of cool air then i knock again and force myself back up into the web this time the dizziness settles on my mind immediately and i fight the sick feeling that twists my stomach just as my body is about to collapse and crawl away of its own accord I hear footsteps from the other side. The door opens, and a length of vine breaks off and dangles in front of my eyes. I should take a step back, but I fear that if I move, I'll fall over. Oh, sorry about that, a man says, and disappears. Wait. I imagine saying, but the words stay locked up in my throat. I watch the vine swing perilously close to my nose and wonder if I care enough to try to move. My throat is fuzzy and thick, and it's getting harder to swallow. My eyes leak tears, but I can't crouch down now. I need to get past this man. If he ever comes back. By the time he reappears, All I can see is the black shape of his clothes. I blink to clear my vision. It doesn't work. One moment. A sharp snip of scissors, and the vine crumples like snakeskin to the ground. He uses his foot to push it aside. I wouldn't touch that, he says. The man tucks the scissors into his belt and folds his arms. I wish my head would stop pounding so I could think how to address him. Can I help you? His voice is quiet and colorless. I clear my throat and try to make my tongue cooperate. I've come to see Mago Rey. Is he expecting you? No, but I, I have a proposal for him. I think the vine on the ground is starting to slither. I try to shuffle sideways, but the the world spins frantically when I move my head. A proposal? I don't think. He pauses. You're standing in the spell net. I nod. That was a mistake. My head lulls to my chest and I can't bring it back up. When did my forehead get so heavy? Why would you do that, child? I have a very clever response. I'm sure of it. But the words won't form properly in my swollen mouth and the black spots are growing larger. And now he's reaching out to pull me inside. But my legs can't be bothered with the journey. I fall forward into the man's arms. He catches me. And before I can ask him not to carry me, lest he learn my secret, the darkness claims me. Everything is black and smells of spearmint and, strangely, fish. Mother keeps clay pots of mint for her headaches, and in the heat of summer our house smells constantly of crushed mint leaves. But it's late winter. Too soon for her headaches, I should prepare a cold compress for her while the servants make tea. I open my eyes. I'm not in my bedroom, nor have I fallen asleep on the chaise lounge on the balcony, shaded from the sun by the clematis that climbs the pergola. I'm in a strange kitchen, slouched in a wooden chair near the fireplace water boils in a copper kettle that dangles over the fire. The man in black, who I assume put me in this chair, stands at a tall wooden counter with his back to me. He slowly works at a mortar and pestle, most likely crushing the mint leaves that perfume the air. On the floor near my feet is a pail of water filled with dead fish, their vacant eyes staring up at me. A fly buzzes erratically around the pail's metal edge. I swallow against the disappointment of not being home and turn my attention to a more pressing matter. Did this man learn my secret when he carried me in? And can I find a way past him to meet Mago Ray? Thankfully, my head no longer throbs, although my back aches from my slouched position. I straighten up, causing the chair to groan in protest. The man turns around. He must be a servant if he knows his way around the kitchen, but his leather jerkin and black silk shirt are well-stitched with expensive cloth. He's dressed too plainly for a magician and too nicely for a servant. In fact, he seems intentionally nondescript, like he's trying to blend into his surroundings. I cannot place his age either. He's both young and old. His face is middle-aged, but there's something about his mannerisms, even the way he holds himself, that reminds me of Gabriel. Or perhaps it's the dimple on his chin, so like the one I mercilessly teased my brother for as a child. But where Gabriel has the arched eyebrows and long nose of the Carvati family, traits that painters describe as fierce and commanding, this man's face is soft and kind. I brace myself for an interrogation but instead he smiles, the creases around his eyes forming in a familiar way. Feeling better? He asks and scoops the crushed leaves into a sachet. 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 I'm sorry. I don't know how to say that word in this context. He asks and scoops the crushed leaves into a sachet. Yes. I pause and pinch my voice lower. Yes, thank you. I'm surprised you were even upright when I found you. He crosses to the fire and lifts the kettle off. Surely you saw the spells. I didn't want to crouch like an animal. The man pauses, eyebrows raised in surprise. Then he pours water into the cup. Mago Ray keeps to himself are you the cook? I glance around the kitchen. Bunches of garlic and onions hang on one wall. A row of copper pans hangs on another. His mouth curves up at the edges. No, I'm Aloysius, Mago Ray's assistant. Assistant? He's too old to be the magician's assistant. Perhaps he means Chamberlain. Whatever his title, now that I know he has the ear of the magician, I change my tone. Thank you for letting me in. Does Mago Ray have a young magician's assistant? He doesn't. He prefers to work on his own. How? I press. When he can't see the spells? Aloysius hands me the tea and leans back against the table. Most of his work doesn't require seeing spells. I am undeterred. What about duels? Magicians are proud and often ill tempered, and often. Magicians are a proud and often ill tempered group who prefer settling disputes on the field. Not with swords, of course, but with spells. I've never witnessed a match, but I know the assistants help identify the type of spell cast. He doesn't duel. At the look on my face, Aloysius grins. Well, not if I can help it. He does surprisingly well on his own, but he could do better with me. Perhaps, but this is his custom, and he keeps to it. He's never had an assistant? A shadow crosses Aloysius' face. Not since I was a boy. So he might reconsider? Please, I only need a moment of his time. I take a sip of tea and wait. The warmth seeps down my throat and through my body. He looks at me closely and I'm careful not to look away. What's your name? Leo. Leo, what? Adami. It's the first name that comes to mind, but with it comes an idea. I'm the son of an herbalist who died in the plague. I'm an orphan. "'I'm sorry to hear that. "'I know a lot about plants and herbs. "'I could be more than just Ray's assistant. "'I could tend his gardens, too.' "'Aloysius taps the table with his fingertips. "'Leo. "'I mean, no offense, "'but you look as if you're running from something, "'or someone, "'and this house is not an asylum.' Perhaps you should go back and face it while you still can. I grip the mug tightly. Has he guessed who I am? If I go back, I'll die, I reply. I came here because I need to start over somewhere new. Please, at least give me the chance. I stop abruptly. Best not to prattle on while I'm begging for your... I stop abruptly. Best not to prattle on when begging for your life. Aloysius considers his shoes, and I drink half the cup in rapid, scalding gulps while I wait. Well then, he says at last, I'll take you to him. I stand quickly, and he holds up a hand. Don't make him angry. If he tells you to go, you must go. Of course, I say, although I have no intention of leaving without a fight. Mago Ray can do his worst to me. It's still better than eking out an existence on the streets. I think. I'm not entirely sure what a magician's worst is. And that's the end of chapter six, kiddos. I'm going to stop there. That's a good stopping place. I got to get ready for work. Okay. We went from uh, gross nastiness of Benito and Leona stealing a body on that island, contaminated island, at the end of chapter four, lazaretto vecchio which very disgusting I, I don't like that whole concept but i gotta say i'm kind of like intrigued a bit now i i think uh i think it's kind of neat leona's personality she's kind of a, a spoiled entitled kid being a, a rich kid and all but she also has a uh, you know, a lot of confidence. She's very persistent, which I think can be positive attributes. So let's just treat Leona like a person. Let's not condemn her, okay? And I'm not going to condemn this book. And I apologize a little bit. I just got to give myself a little leeway here because I don't like the whole death and bodies and nastiness and corpses and all the lying and stuff. But, um, Hey, let's just talk about it and reason our way through it and enjoy the story too. I did think it was pretty cool when Leona approached Mago Ray's door and fought her way through all those spells. That was kind of neat. And the bird sensing it and then her being able to see them after she realized what was going on. There's something kind of cool going on here about how the spells aren't visible at first and then they're visible after Leona senses them. So I'm just going to kind of consider part of this book to be like us watching a Harry Potter movie. I don't think we've ever watched a Harry Potter movie, but it can't be any worse. It's probably about the same. Maybe we should read a Harry Potter book and see if like... uh Christine takes any inspiration from Harry Potter. And uh, I forget the lady's name. It'll come to me after I'm done. The Harry Potter author. But I actually, I really like her. And I really like her now versus who she started out when she was 20-some years ago, or maybe 30 years ago, writing the Harry Potter books. I think she's a super cool lady. Um, I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but she's, she's a very courageous woman in what she stands up for and how she tries to speak truth into modern society. You will learn more about her, I'm sure, as you get older. So let me see. I do owe you a pronunciation of that one word. What was it? it was some sort of vegetation. Oh yeah. Let me look it up. Give me a second here, kids. I'm going to hit stop and then jump back on with you. Okay, I'm back. That was quick, huh? Um it's uh pronounced this. I'll hit the little play button. Bougainvillea. 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 Okay, that's not so bad. Bougainvillea is a genus of a thorny orn is a genus of thorny ornamental vines, bushes, and trees belonging to the four o'clock family. Oh, great! Another word I can't pronounce. Nictanginacea. It is native to eastern South America, found from Brazil west to Peru and south to Argentina. Bougainvillea. Sorry. I've never heard that before. Oh, let's hit another pronunciation. How to pronounce Bougainvillea.
1: Come on. We are looking at how to pronounce the name of this plant. Ornamental vines, bushes, or trees they are. How do you go about pronouncing their name? Bougainvillea. You do want to stress on the third syllable, the V-syllable. Bougainvillea. Bougainvillea. Did you get it? Let me know in the comments. Bougainvillea. Here are more videos.
0: Okay, so Bougainvillea, if you want to give it the accent. Okay, so there we go. Um... Love you guys. Uh, Thanks for reading through these books with me. We're going to start on chapter 7 another time. Um, Garrison, my apologies. If you're not super interested in these books, they're not super fun for your age. At least this one isn't, I wouldn't imagine. But uh, hopefully it'll pick up here. And we'll have maybe some crazy fights with the sea monsters. I'm just calling them the sea monsters. The Cellini. We'll see how all that goes down. So we are on... Sonia, you always ask how far we are through the book. Chapter 7 is page 74. And, uh, ooh, this book is 396 pages long. So we are... Not even, let me see, 30, not even 20% through the book. We're just getting, not even getting warmed up yet, hardly. Okay. Oh, and kiddos, I asked you another question about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 that I read to you guys about... Jesus on the cross when he said it starts out he says my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from my words of groaning? But that first part of that first verse in Psalm 22 is what Jesus one of the things Jesus said while he was on the cross and um, You'll learn more about that whole thing, whether Jesus was truly forsaken. In a sense, he was, but in a sense, God never left his son. So in one sense, he was, but in another sense, he wasn't. And this psalm ends up at the very end Rejoicing and confirming in the fact that the Lord rescues those in times of trouble, even when surrounded by enemies. Uh, Where was that one verse? Oh, okay. Psalm 22, verse 20. Deliver my soul from the sword... My precious life from the power of wild dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion at the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So when Jesus quotes that first line of the psalm, of Psalm 22, it's just like a big uh, arrow along the side of the road that says, Hey, read the rest of Psalm 22 and see what it says. So verse 20 deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of wild dogs so Jesus regarded his life as precious even though he laid it down on the cross uh, laid it down for us with his death on the cross and we are to regard our lives as precious too um we're to serve others and put others beside, before ourselves, but we're also to love ourselves just as we love our neighbors, and we're to regard our lives as precious. And there's a bunch more scriptures that talk about how precious your life is and how much you mean to God. And I just want you to know, kiddos, if you ever get the thought, or feeling that your life is not precious to God or to others, that is a thought that needs taken captive, or it's a fiery dart from the enemy, that you need to pull out of your, the, you need to pull that out of your, your side, and uh, and not agree with those kind of things if they ever come your way. Lily, your life is precious. To people, to your family and friends and others you haven't even met, and to God especially. Gideon, your life is just as precious to God and people. Chrissy, your life is just as precious to your Heavenly Father and to people that you know and haven't even met yet. Sonia Camille, your life is so very precious. To your Heavenly Father, and to people you know and you haven't met. Garrison Walter, your life is so precious to God, your Creator, your Heavenly Father, and to people you know, your family, and to all the people you haven't met yet in your life. So kiddos, just remember that. Your life is precious precious and God didn't make you for he made you for a purpose and he has many great works for you to do for your joy and for your adventure and to glorify him so just remember that okay and if you ever hear anything from anywhere else it's not true And Take that thought captive, or cast that imagination down, do not agree with it, and rebuke it. If you're hearing negative things, that your life isn't precious, say, Satan, get behind me. That's a lie, and I stand on the Scripture, all of the Scripture, that my life is precious, and my Father in Heaven has great plans for me, Plans to prosper me and not to harm me. Plans to give me a hope and a future. And then he has many, many great works lined up for me to do. All right. I love you, kiddos. Got to go to work. Catch you later. Have a good night.
1: All of your days shine brightly And your nights blessed with peace Wherever you lay down to sleep And all things I'll make good For those who believe may you seed into a strong fruitful tree as the days unfold hold your breath to see life is a mystery Stay. The law will make your days come.